Hello and welcome to Switch It. This is a stripped back, simplified edition of the show aimed at those who've previously never had an interest in cricket podcasting. As we recap the business end of the 100 and try to weigh up how much or how little the game has changed after the advent of 100 ball cricket. To do so, I'm joined by a couple of 100 heroes, although sadly I don't have a natty cap and a medal for either of them. Assistant editor Matt Roller and social media guru Paul Muchmore have attended more games of the tournament than it was reasonable to ask and can now tell you all about 10 ball sets, new team loyalties and Jacks Jones, although I won't test them on the last one. Hope you're both well and to quote a subsequently deleted tweet, not experiencing that feeling when the 100 is over and you don't know what to do with yourself for the next year. Um, Matt, I'll, I'll come to you first. The ECB pulled it off, but was it everything they were hoping for? Um, I think it was, yeah, I think so. I think if you'd asked the ECB um, in about January 2020 uh, what their hopes would have been from the first year of the 100, uh, it would have been similar to this. And I think given the fact that there was the delay with covid um i think they they did about it it went as well as the competition as a whole went about as well as they could feasibly realistically have hoped for um i think you know i've just just been on a, a, a um briefing call with a couple of people from ecb who, who the, the you know they talk about various learnings um as people do after these events and i think there are definitely sort of little tweaks to iron out next year i think um you know, for various reasons, the quality of overseas player wasn't quite what people have been after this year, um, particularly in the women's competition. I think that the Australians were a massive miss. Um, I think there are definitely still um, things around uh, pushing pushing how good some players are. I think um, something I found interesting has been the lack of sort of hype around individual players over like a PA system or on a big screen. There's sort of little video clips or whatever, but, you know, um, you wouldn't necessarily know if you were a casual follower that, for example, you were watching, you know, the number one ranked T20 bowler in the world when you went to watch a Manchester Originals game and Sophie Eccleston came on. Uh, things like that. I think there's work to do, but I think, yeah, as a whole, general takeaways. Um, I think, yeah, I think the ECB will be pleased with how it's gone. Um, and yeah, in terms of the sort of post hundred come down, I think I, I was able to experience that for all of about twenty four hours until I realised that I had some quarter final previews to be cracking on with for the for the T twenty blast. So um, yeah, and, and the <laughs> the short form cricket never stops. Um, but you know, <laughs> that's no complaint on my behalf at least, even if there is on some others. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, um, new followers to cricket will find out um, all about the unending glut of uh, games and formats uh, and tournaments um, soon enough. Paul, you're here on your your Switch debut. Um, I'm yes. expecting I'm expecting a Will Smead like attempt to tee off from the start. <laughs> um, I won't ask you to critique the 100 um, Twitter account, but uh, <laughs> how did you find the tournament, the atmosphere, the cricket, the shiny new whizziness of it all? It, it was good fun, really. Um, you know, it was it was cricket. It took a, you know, a bit of time to get used to the all the news ins and outs. But once you're a couple of weeks into the tournament, I think it really got into its flow. And by then, the captains had sort of worked out their tactics. And I think we saw some really, really good cricket, particularly in the second half of the tournament. Um, the crowds were great, you know. Um, 
you had sort of the family atmosphere in the afternoon and then it did so most of the games I went to were at the Oval and Lords you know which do fill out T20 games in London so you did have that sort of familiar T20 quite boozy atmosphere but it was a good atmosphere on on the whole um, they changed the alcohol rules at Lords. There were streakers throughout the tournament, but um, I think the tournament was impressive. It did actually; it was a success in attracting the new fans. So, um, so many people I know who don't actually f- follow qu- cricket on the regular they have been they have been following the hundred. Whether that is just down to it being uh, free to air TV, which is a massive thing, I don't know how much the actual branding the simplifying, the countdown nature of it does simplify it. And I think that does help because people do think like cricket isn't actually that complicated, but there are so many things that can make it complicated. Um, I just want to quote a a post that I saw from a friend of mine who does follow lots of sports, but she said she posted after the final, what a final, didn't think I could enjoy cricket. And then I was introduced to the hundred. There we go. Well, um, I was going to say, we, we, with our um, producer Sam now uh, an Invincibles, Oval Invincibles diehard, um, preparing to get himself a, a Marazan cap tattoo. Yeah, clearly, um, clearly, it's reaching the parts that um, cricket couldn't otherwise have reached. Um, although we've we've obviously heard the counter view um, from our uh, colleague George um, over recent weeks as well. So, yeah, um, <laughs> the uh, in terms of kind of games that. Um, or things that didn't um, happen, I suppose. Games being affected by by weather, um, uh, there were one or two washouts, but it went pretty well despite the damp um, summer that we've suffered. Um, Matt, only a few uh, uh, COVID cases uh, for the ECB to deal with in the end. I mean, we we were worried about what might happen there, but um, the contingencies, or at least the interpretation of of what close contacts um, uh, are, are deemed to be um, worked out okay for the ECB there as well. Yeah, I, I think that's actually it's quite interesting. I think there was a there was definitely a school of thought in sort of March April twenty twenty when um, it, you know it became clear what impact the pandemic was going to have on the domestic season that the, the hundred would be one of the few things that would be sort of prioritised all that sort of thing. I think it became very clear very quickly uh, the extent to which it would not have worked at all behind closed doors. Uh, and also how, yeah, the, the idea that, um, you know, I think, I think, I, I, yeah, as, as you say, I think the organisers got extremely lucky um, with the, the sort of fairly minimal number of cases. There was sort of a minor outbreak in both the men's and women's camps at Northern Superchargers. And then um, a couple of head coaches went down and Andy Flower and Shane Warren. But other than that, um, yeah, they got, they got pretty lucky with the fact that there weren't whole squads decimated. I think, um, you know, that, that, there's obviously been a complete sort of uh, randomness in terms of when spikes have been versus the, the cricket calendar. And, um, it, you know, it, literally if the dates for this tournament have been two weeks earlier at that point when several county squads went into isolation um, en masse because of because of tests and, you know, the 100 would have been would have been absolutely disastrous, I think, for it. So, yeah, they they they. They got lucky on a lot of things. Like you say, the weather was actually pretty bad for most of the tournament, but I think there were only a couple of full washouts. Um, the final the day at Lords, um, I think I turned up at, you know, just after two in Drizzle, thinking, you know, if we're lucky, we might get the women's toss in at about half four. Um, and, you know, it got two full games in on time, which was 
um, nothing short of a miracle, really. I mean, the, the, you know, the conditions weren't exactly great um, for a couple of games. There were a few times where I think the umpires made a real sort of conscious effort to stay on uh, through weather, um, which I think, you know, to be fair, is something that's happened in the blast. It was something that definitely happened in sort of the early years of the 2020 Cup. Um, but yeah, by by sort of just risking it a bit, I suppose, and uh, and ploughing through um, it by and large. Yeah, lucky with weather, lucky with COVID, all that sort of thing. Um, I think, yeah, they'll be, they'll be counting their blessings. <laughs> yeah, Paul, um, you were there pretty early on, on Saturday, I think, mm. and, and sent us a, a picture of, of the covers on. And um, I was all set for a delayed, well, the toss was delayed, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll start, you know, mid-afternoon, or that was mid-afternoon, late afternoon. Uh, we've only got to get 25 balls to, to get a game in. And there had been a talk about what the ECB would do, uh, or what the umpires would do, rather, um, in terms of trying to give both uh, games a chance of being completed uh, there was a reserve day um, in the end we didn't need any of that exactly yeah um, I, they they were trying to they were going to be a bit more flexible so during the tournament they had a defined window for the women's game which had to be done by a certain time ready for the men's game to start but for the final they said they were going to be a bit more flexible so say it cleared up at say 6pm they would have played two 50 balls aside games Um and so I got to Lords a couple of hours before uh, scheduled to start. And around 2.15, I said, Gee, there's no chance of a toss in 15 minutes. The umpires were out there with the umbrellas up. There were a few people on the few of the ground staff, like sweeping away some water, but like, there's no chance. And then like it all happened so quickly. Stop drizzling. If there's no further rain, we'll start at 3 p.m. And we did start at 3 p.m. And you know, yeah, as, as Matt said, we did have some showers through that. And I think that maybe did affect sides a bit during um especially through uh the uh overall invincibles innings but um like good on them for keeping on going and i think you know to get two full games on on the final when the weather forecast was particularly bad especially the day before when we were looking at it and it said thunderstorms and credit (laughs) to the ecb and to the umpires yeah there certainly does seem to have been a a greater uh, degree of flexibility for sort of staying out through a bit of drizzle. Um, one of one of the um, bugbears of people who aren't familiar with cricket is how quick they are they are to go off. Um, often in those situations, um, the knockout stages then saw saw two um, eliminators played on Friday. Uh, Oval Invincibles overcame Birmingham Phoenix in a low scorer, um, and then. Southern Braves spiked Trent Rockets uh, for a comprehensive win. Uh, Matt, these were were quite contrasting games between the teams that finished second and third in the group stages. Yeah, I mean, I think the the women's eliminator was um, probably by a distance the best um, game in terms of how how tight it was, how tense it was um, out of the knockout stages. Um, You know, look for look for all money that like Birmingham were going to chase those runs down. Um, I think they lost a wicket off the 50th ball, having been two down, absolutely cruising in terms of required rate. But I think there was always a sense that, um, you know, the, the absence of Shafali Verma, even though she wasn't um, in particularly good form, it just sort of weakened their batting lineup because it meant that someone from the middle order had to shift up. I think Katie Mack uh, opened, having batted four or five for most of the comp. Uh, and that meant that they were a bit sort of lighter and inexperienced. And yeah, Oval had this this gun bowling attack with, you know, the the three South Africans, um, 
and then Tash Varant, who's been a great story actually, um, having sort of, you know, she lost her central contract in early 2019 and since then has just sort of completely reinvented herself. She was saying after that eliminator that she used to be a relatively one-dimensional bowler who would swing the new ball, but if it stopped swinging, didn't really have much to go to, but now has, you know, various sort of off cutters, um, different angles of approach, all that sort of thing, and, and looks like a really good death bowler. So, um, yeah, her, her development will be, um, I'm sure, noted noted keenly by England. But, um, yeah, that, that was a, a really good game. Um, sort of, yeah, tigerish defence of 114, I think they made batting first, which was definitely short of par even, um, even though games have been relatively low scoring at the Oval in the women's comp. Um and yeah, in the men's game, it was basically, I think I, I tweeted at the time, that's how you win a knockout game within 20 minutes in, in short form cricket is you pick, you know, two two guys specifically to take wickets in the power play, uh, you know, give them the first 25 balls of the innings between them and take four wickets. That's, uh, you know, pretty much a dream start. Um, George Garton was very impressive across the whole finals weekend. Um, it sounds like he's off to RCB in the IPL. Um which is a good opportunity for him, and yeah, he 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 was he was excellent. Took three three big wickets early on, and yeah, from that point it was a very a very one sided game. But you know, um, these things do happen, and seem like the crowd enjoyed themselves, and everyone was out of there by nine. So, <laughs> don't think anyone was complaining too much. <laughs> a quick game's a good game, although all uh, hundred ball games are quick uh, by their <laughs> by their very um, nature. Um, Paul, the um, Finals, uh, we sort of touched on a, a, a little bit of weather around um, and it looked a bit sticky for um, <laughs> Oval again after, uh, you know, sort of halfway through their innings going at uh, a runner ball. Um, but really, I mean, over the course of both games, uh, I mean, the Marazan cap show was was uh, what the Invincibles um were relying on. She missed a fair chunk of the group stage, actually, with injury. But her presence um, back in the side really raised them a notch. They got thrashed by Southern Brave in their final group game, I think it was, um, a few days earlier. But, um, I mean, she she took them to another level, uh, helped them get to a, a score and, you know, a score on the board in a final. Um, talk about the pressure of chasing. Uh <laughs> And then, and then the first um, set or two sets of of the chase um, really kind of defined where this match was going. Well, absolutely. Um, I, she she only played, I think, five of their ten games, um, but she was influential. If you look at her stats, she contributed with both bat and ball in all of the games. And in those last two games, in the eliminator and in the final. Uh, both, uh, both games over Invincibles were probably going about a runner ball or less up to the 50 ball mark. And then Marazan Cap and Alice Capsi both put a partnership on that boosted them to, you know, what felt like was an underpar score, but um, was a defendable score. They had the bowlers, they had Barron, they had uh, Cap, they had Ismail, which is a gun bowling attack um, to defend that. And then, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, some brave, they've had a formidable top order all the way through this tournament. But Cap, she just, she killed the game in that first 10 balls. It was quite outstanding, really. <laughs> it was sort of speechless. Um, um, the ball was swinging um, on that Lord Slope and um, Wyatt got caught behind. Lewis got caught behind. Um, I think Dunkley, I can't remember how she went. 
But, yeah, um, caught, caught in the slips, yeah. <laughs> caught in slips. Um, and all three of them, you know, once you've got that done, you've then got Stephanie Taylor coming in and, you know, she is one of the greatest um, female batters in the world. Um, but you, know, you, you think then, okay, this is a massive task now that you've got 90 balls to chase this, you've got to rebuild. And it, it, you'd seen in the overall Invincibles innings, it wasn't easy to score. And, you know, maybe Wyatt and, um, well, Lewis hadn't faced a ball in the first 10 ball in, until she went. Um, so they could, might have just been able to sort of block that out and then say, OK, here we go. But, you know, the game was over then and... Yeah, um, I mean, it, it was 14 for six after 36 mm. balls. Um, Matt, I think we finally saw Marazan Cap smile at that stage as well. <laughs> uh, one of the things about both games really was the intensity with which she appears to do everything, um, even if it's just passing on instructions to a teammate. Uh, <laughs> do not break uh, eye contact there. Um, but uh, you wrote in the in the build up, and I don't want to put this on you uh, but you, you wrote the story of how brave got to the final um yeah. how they were the the gun team charlotte edwards all set for the coronation uh, <laughs> after taking i think southern vipers uh, well as a player to the inaugural KSL and then um the uh, rachel hayo flint as a coach um it, it, it came unstuck pretty spectacularly there uh, can yeah. we just ascribe that to sort of pressure um, uh, the pressure of a final. Uh, they were missing Smriti Mandana, uh, who had played a, a, a pretty big part of their qualification. Um, and as we'll come to, I think, with the, the, the Phoenix and the men's, they hadn't played since the, the Monday, whereas um, Invincibles perhaps had the advantage of back to back games and sort of riding um, the crest of the wave there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really, it really, uh, uh, the wheels fell off in spectacular style. Yeah, uh, it, it, for, for brave, it was it was quite a um, you know, pardon the pun, the capitulation. But um, yeah, it was. <laughs> I think uh, I think you know, brave were the, the the gun team throughout. I think obviously Mandana was a big loss, um, and yeah, it probably didn't help sort of rhythm wise that they hadn't played for the best part of a week. Um, what I would say is that both those points, actually, the sort of the, the not having played since the Monday and um, the sort of the, the idea of pressure in the final um, having affected them, both those points were put to Anya Shrebsov afterwards. He basically said, to be honest, I think we batted really badly against Cap in the first 10 balls. And when you, you know, when you're two for three after 10 and suddenly players you haven't batted much in the tournament because of how dominant you've been are coming in and tasked with scoring quite quickly in quite tough conditions, you know, the, the game's basically done. Um, so I, I think that was pretty much a large part of it. I think, you know, White and Dunkley were probably to an extent caught in two minds, but equally it's, it, you know, it's quite rare to see someone swinging the ball at pretty good pace. I think Cap was sort of 73, 74 mile an hour for, for most of that opening 10. Uh, swinging the ball a long way um, with two slips in as well, by the way, because um, Van Nierkirk took that catch having put herself in at second slip off Dunkley. Um, so sort of rewarded for, for her attacking captaincy. Um, but yeah, I, it, you know, they completely crumbled, didn't they? But yeah, Cap, as you say, you know, very intense, but it's clearly had quite a 
um, tumultuous year for, for one reason or another because she, she caught COVID really early on um, and has sort of, I think it, she said at the start of this comp that she was, you know, pretty much fully recovered now, but it's clearly affected her in terms of post-viral fatigue, that sort of thing throughout the year. I think it delayed a, a, a um, sort of medical procedure she was expecting to have on her, her, her heart condition, which has been a, a sort of uh, an issue that's affected her a couple of times. I think she retired from a, a, a WBBL game uh, sort of midway, mid innings because of it, um, it last season. So it's clearly, you know, it's not been fully easy for her. And then, yeah, to have missed, I think, five out of eight group games with a, a, a sort of a thigh injury is it's been pretty pretty tough year i'd say all told so it was it was sort of fitting way to end that she you know defined the final so much and then also had the 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 winning moment where um you know van neerkirk saved her final set of five for very late in the innings and then eventually brought her back and she cleaned up lauren bell um so yeah it, it, it was a really nice story and i think that you know that south african core um it was basically that that was a huge part of um how invincibles did it they actually they, they signed them all up um very early they were one of the only teams that weren't sort of majorly affected by dropouts from overseas players um and yeah while there were points in the competition where they were only fielding one of the three because ismail had a had an injury that kept her out for a couple of games as well they they scrapped just enough with their domestic players to um to get through um e- even the contributions of people like grace gibbs and joe gardner both been fielded pretty well they obviously you know you probably get a, a slightly odd situation in women's cricket where you do occasionally carry a couple of domestic players uh in in a short form team but both of them you know gibbs in particular would give it a massive whack with the bat whenever she came out and was a, a real gun in the field so Having people like that pull them through, plus all the um, England players like uh, Alice Capsey is clearly going to be uh, a superstar within a few years. And yeah, Farrant was was brilliant, as mentioned. Um, yeah, they, they were a really good team. I think, you know, um, obviously, I, I, I think I still think Southern Brave were probably the best team in the comp if you zoom out and look at it as a whole. Um, but you know, uh, weird stuff happens in short form finals. Um, and yeah, that was a, a, a fine example of that. That's uh, that's knockout cricket. Um, <laughs> sometimes uh, it's just the team that's better on the day. Um, Grace Gibbs certainly gives good celebration. That's something I noticed <laughs> through the through the tournament and good send offs. Um, by the way, I saw that, that Sky actually had to apologise once for so, for you know someone chipped a catch chair at mid off, and she probably sent them on the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely passion for the game coming through there, um, Paul. The uh, the men's final was um, uh, a close-ish game in some ways, albeit it it it, um, it petered out um, once. Well, I suppose once Liam Livingston had been run out was was perhaps the the key moment. But um, again, in the, in the in the same way that Southern Brave um, in the women's comp had. had marched to the top of the standings and then hadn't played for a few days. Um, Birmingham Phoenix got into the final on a run of five consecutive wins, I think. Um, they were strengthened uh, by the return of Moeen Ali, who'd gone to play a test match. I'm not sure if that's good preparation for 100 finals day, but um, one, one we'll maybe grapple with um, in, in future seasons. Um but uh, Liam Livingston was sort of the uh, the gun batter uh, in the tournament. Um, I think it's something like more than twice as many sixes as anyone else. He was the leading run scorer. Um, they won the toss, uh, albeit James Vince looked a bit peeved with um, that whole process because uh, Moeen's initial flick ended up with the coin 
stood on its side or something like that down the side <laughs> of the it. stage so one of the one of the drawbacks of of doing it on a mm. <laughs> on a music um uh, stage um and and then obviously they chose to chase as well uh, a lot of teams uh, certainly it's sort of owen morgan's preference with england it seems to be um a, a thing uh, probably uh, in other parts of the world as well but the, the the idea of knowing what you're going to have to um uh, to chase to win, uh, and particularly in th- this uh, new format, the earlier stages, I think a lot of teams were keen to um, put the opposition in and see how they did. Um, but runs on the board again, um, uh, an imposing thing in a final. Um, Southern Brave had clicked as well. We, Matt sort of uh, uh, done, done the story of the, of the, the Jai Wardner ball and um, the, the Mumbai Indians trick of, uh, well, I would say start slow, starting a bit of a shambles. Um, they nearly lost three in a row. Uh, they nearly lost to Birmingham Phoenix in the in their third game. Uh, I, possibly you were both at that, uh, at the GS Bowl. Um, but they were on, on a run of form. Um, and, and then and they pulled it together again in the final i mean uh, uh, but it was some of the, the the lesser sung players that got them that score well exactly um so they lost their first two games they could have lost to birmingham phoenix at the years well they could have lost to london spirit at lords and that would have been their tournament over but as it is they won all of their games past those first two games where they lost to um welsh fire and trent rockets um who then they obviously beat in the eliminator on friday night um and so when, when Birmingham Phoenix won the toss and um, chose to bowl, it started off very well for them. So Adam Milne, he was outstanding all tournament and he got out Quinton to cop very, very early. So up stepped um, Paul Sterling and you know, he's played at Lords a lot. He played for Middlesex in the blast and only Owen Morgan's hit more sixes than him at the ground. So he, he stepped up at the top and hit 61 off of um, 36 balls. Um, James Vince went early and... So Southern Braves, their middle order hasn't been necessarily the strongest throughout this tournament. Like Alex Davies has stepped up a bit, um, but Colin de Grandhom didn't really contribute much through the tournament. He contributed in the Eliminator. Um, but, you know, you would put sort of um, Birmingham Phoenix quite strongly as favourites once de Kock and Vince had got out as they contributed the highest sort of amount of runs for the Brave through the tournament. But um, Ross Whiteley stepped up. Uh, Tim David, who came in as a replacement for um, Colin de Grandhom, uh, he hit uh, 15 off of six balls. He hit two sixes, which were, you know, he'd been smashing it around um, in in the Royal London in the last couple of matches of the blast. For, sorry, and they, they, got a, they got a good score. So uh, only uh, once had that total been chased in the whole tournament. Uh, but like in the women's final, it sort of all started fairly, fairly similar. So um, Phoenix had brought in David Beddingham in um, place of uh, Finn Allen, who'd gone off on international duty like Colin de Grandhom. But uh, it was Garten opening bowling again. And, um, you know, he got that early strike and it was very, very tight in that first 20 balls with him and Overton. Uh, in this, these last couple of games that Brave had got this template of opening with those two uh, people, then you'd have the middle overs guys and then you'd have Mills and um, Jordan at the death and um, yeah at one point you thought okay here comes Liam Livingston he has been magic as you said he's hit I think he hit I think 27 sixes in the tournament I think the next best was Glenn Phillips uh, which was 13 
and that was all mostly in one innings um, last week. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a six fest. This whole tournament wasn't really a six fest. But Liam Livingston, like, he just sends it soaring over the boundary. It's just with ease. And it took a moment of magic from, um, from Tim David to end his knock on um, 46 of 19 balls. They, they run for single and um, there was a misfield on the boundary. It was um, from David and they go for the second fires it in direct hit and there goes Livingston and after that you know um, you think Phoenix is hopes gone like Moen Alley's there but yeah he, he'd just come from a test match he wasn't at his most fluent during the final and uh, at the death like you see that um, Jordan leaps and runs in the last few balls but the game was won by then like I think between uh, uh, balls 78 and 96 or something there wasn't a boundary the game was done and um Southern Brave, they, they closed out, they won by 32 runs. And, you know, that momentum, I think, did take them through and um, deserved winners, I'd say. Yeah, they, they certainly seemed, um, Matt, by the end of the tournament, uh, we, we uh, problems at the start, as discussed, and some of that was sort of selection. Um, some of it even just, just Jai Wardner uh, wanting to maintain his 100% losing record, perhaps in opening games. But um, by the end, they'd really clicked. You know, they had that formula of, uh, well, certainly in those, in, in the two knockout games of um, Gartner and Overton taking the new ball, um, Lintot in the in the middle overs um and one of the stars of the tournament as well uh, his rise uh, which you've written about uh, and then jordan and mills tying it up at the end um livingston was was the 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 wild card there the factor that um that could have changed that changed it um on his own almost i mean uh, he was 46 off um, off nineteen. Well, that's that's what he uh, made um, when yes, Tim David <laughs> hit the stumps from um, sort of deep cover. Uh, we, and uh, and I mean, Kevin Peterson was was quite harsh on Livingston, uh, lazy Livingston. I think he was calling him afterwards <laughs> because of the way he kind of jogged the single. Um, I think it was a dropped catch or a near near catchable chance out there um, into the deep, uh, and, and then left him the crucial couple of inches short um, on the way back. But um, yeah, br- brave and all round performance because as you wrote uh, as well, it was those sort of unsung, uh, the county stalwarts uh, in in Paul Sterling and, and Ross Whiteley that had got them to um, above par, uh, a target yeah, that had only been chased once by anyone in the tournament. That was Phoenix, but not under the pressure of a final uh, Lords. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, think from... From the time they lost that second game to to Welsh Fire, I was sort of talking about how Mahela will do his his usual thing where he starts slowly. But yeah, looking back, given they had that washout, I think the the table was such that they genuinely did have to win every single game um, with hindsight because of how other results went. So it was it was quite something. And yeah, they did. They it was the, all the cliches about peaking at the right time. You know, they turn in their two two most complete performances were in knockout games, which is you know pretty much perfect for them. Uh, they sort of tactically had this; it, it sort of developed during the season. But they basically, in having Jordan and Mills, um, Vince started saving a lot of their spells for the death, um, which basically meant that. And and Jai Wardner was talking about this yesterday. He was saying because of that, teams were attacking them more early on, so they decided they would be a little bit more attacking with the new ball. They would, you know, let Garten off his leash, bowl him 15 out of 25 balls in the power play quite often. They obviously had Overton come back from test duty, which was a nice bonus on that side of things. 
Uh, and it just meant, you know, you, you had people talk about role clarity. That that was exactly what it was in terms of their bowling attack. They had two power play guys, two death guys, and a middle guy uh, in Lintot. Um, and it was an inc- it must have been an incredibly easy team for Vince to captain in terms of making bowling changes at least. Um, but yeah, I think they they were worthy winners. I think a lot of people had picked picked them out as the uh, as the likely champions at the start. They had the you know the, exactly what you're after in a sort of short form competition or a franchise style competition where you have um, a lot of local a, a local core where a lot of guys know each other and have played at certain grounds before, and then you have um, enough. Uh, contributions from the people who maybe aren't part of the same squads, people like um, Davies or Whiteley or Lintot, uh, plus the overseas players. Um, they actually recruited really well in terms of replacements as well, because if you think originally, I think they were going to go into the season with Warner, Stoyness and Russell. Then they had Conway and DeGrandon for a bit, both of whom got injured, but ended up with Sterling, played a blinder in the final uh, Tim David was a great sort of short-term pickup. Uh, you know, I think he took a blinding catch, ran out Livingston, and got fifteen off six, which is always helpful. Um, so yeah, it it, it was a, a very um, it, it maybe not the most amazing storyline in terms of a team playing a new way, but it was just very clinical. Um, pretty much everything that people had expected, and were surprised when it didn't happen in the first two games. Um, uh, we'll slip it in, Matt. You did predict uh, some brave, I think. <laughs> Uh, back at the start, you mentioned a few people had had um, <laughs> tipped them. Um, I think if we go back to switch a few weeks ago, uh, um, yeah, we will we will give you that um, credit. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they throughout the tournament, I think there were players that kind of took their chance. Uh, players who, uh, for whatever reason, you know, uh, county regulars or young players. Um, in some ways, because there was uh, f- there were fewer of the of the expected overseas big names um, due to COVID or whatever, um, it, there there were opportunities. Um, and Paul, that kind of men's in the men's and women's side, whether it was kind of young players like you know Will Smead, at, at, um, Alice Capsey, um, uh, uh, George Garton, uh, um, we've mentioned Jake Lintot, uh, but you also had. Kind of uh, the old stages, um, if we can call Ross Whiteley that. I think he's um, early thirties. Uh, John Simpson uh, produced a couple of memorable performances. Um, the Superchargers were the only team to get two hundred. I think Simpson um, got him there. I mean, he's an England um, cat these days, so maybe I shouldn't be calling him um, lesser heralded. Uh, Benny Howell was kind of a, a big part of the, the Phoenix team. So, I mean, the tournament definitely gave um, players like that. Even Steve Jones, uh, um, another kind of uh, who's who's been on the circuit for for a long while, hasn't played for England, but um, was was one of the leading um, scorers in the women's uh, competition. Uh, the hundred d- did shine a spotlight there. Absolutely, I think like you could argue, okay, this the men's tournament in particular wasn't really much of a step up in quality from the blast. I think with those international stars who were meant to be coming and who didn't come, uh, you know. It, it was like the Blast, but in a different format in terms of team structure, I think. Obviously, three overseas players instead of um, two. But, yeah, they, those guys who have been doing it in the Blast and also like doing it in, um, around the T20 circle, like Samit Patel, for example, you know, they, they all stepped up and they all contributed. And, you know, it, it was high-quality cricket. And I think also in the women's tournament, I think it also really showed uh, how much, depth there is in the women's game in England right now because obviously we, we're we all familiar well we are 
uh, with the main sort of England squad 15 and then maybe sort of five beyond it. But um, the professionalising these 40 extra contracts uh, for women's domestic cricketers and the, the Hey Ho Flint Trophy and now the Charlotte Edwards Cup, um, I think that's really sort of shown depth in the women's game. And as I said, Eve Jones, um, George Adams, uh, and, 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 and many others, you know, I, as we've mentioned, Alex Capsi, you know, as a future star. Um, it, it's really shown that there's the depth there. And I, I'd argue that um, I haven't necessarily watched lots of um, WBBL and this tournament was missing the top Australian talent, but we still did have Australian talent here. And like the likes of Amanda Jade Wellington, like she's, she was an important part of Seven Braves side. And she, she played in um, the Women's Ashes uh, four years ago down under um, Sammy Joe Johnson, you know, they're, they're high quality players. And I think with the likes of um, Shafali Verma, Smriti Mandano, etc., uh, the, the women's tournament was arguably the highest quality women's domestic com- competition that we've ever seen. And um, that was partly due to the overseas players and I think due to the ongoing professionalisation of the women's game in England. Yeah, I mean, um, well, the uh, the probably was less doubt about a franchise um, esque tournament working uh, for the men. I mean, that had been mooted over sort of a a decade, really, um, that England. the counties should get their heads around this. Um, the, the benefits of having, you know, one game on per night and, and um, always off television rather than um, one game out of eight or something like that. Uh, and the, the rest being kind of uh, relegated to um, match reports uh, uh, written, by, written for, by, the, by the ECB network, for instance. Um the, the men's the men's tournament was was likely to be a success in that regard, but um, Matt, it was really the, uh, a game changer for the women. Um, a lot of the players talked about it. The the increasing exposure, the the crowds. I mean, there were seventeen thousand um, uh, in attendance for the um, the final at Lords. I'm never quite sure why. If you've bought a tickets for a double header for a final, you wouldn't go to both. But anyway, <laughs> the seventeen thousand in at the the point they counted it for the women, then twenty four uh, later in the day. Uh, and uh, that was a record for a women's domestic fixture I think um, and uh, overall something like um, a quarter of a million um, people through the gates for the, for the women's fixtures I mean th- this has taken um, women's cricket to, to a different level in this country yeah and I think it, you know just speaking to people at the ECB I think it even took them by surprise to a certain extent I think they they hoped that it would be um, something of a success, but you know this double header model was something they chanced upon because they thought it would be, um, you know, it, it would save some money and in, in terms of production costs and that sort of thing within within the confines of COVID. So um, you know, it, it I think uh, yeah, it went, in terms of I think the overseas players loved it. Um, you know, speaking to Van Neerkirk, for example, she clearly wasn't really a hundred percent sure what she was buying into when she was quarantining in Croatia six weeks ago. But um, I think, you know, they have been impressed by the level of crowds. I remember Lauren Winfield-Hill said a couple of weeks ago um, that, you know, her, her previous experience of double headers had been that you would sort of look round right at the end of the run chase uh, and realise that it was sort of slowly starting to fill up because quite often there's a big gap between a women's and men's game in previous double headers. But that it 
felt quite different in that by the start of the run chase, the ground was, you know, already on, on the way to, to filling up and it, it felt like people were there for them as well in a different way um, that it possibly hadn't previously. Um, and yeah, I think even for, for obviously it's been amazing for domestic players to have that platform to, to perform. Uh, and yeah, you've seen people like Capsi um, take their opportunity, but even for England internationals, um, it's probably, it's, you know, it's worth remembering how, uh, how rare it is for England players to play at sort of major international venues. I think England have only played uh, one international uh, at a sort of men's test venue since the World Cup final in 2017. Um, so for, for these guys, you know, people like Anya Shrubsall going back to Lords to play a group game for the first time since 2017, is you know, it's, it feels surreal. But um, so, yeah, the opportunity to play in front, play eight games in front of, um, you know, decent crowds, at least in massive grounds on good pitches all that sort of thing has been um has been has been amazing really and you know just be hearing from people like charlotte edwards about um the you know the the, the contrast with what things were like even in the latter stage of her career sort of five years ago um you know i, I was even thinking back on finals day to um to ksl finals day two years before and it's you know i think that was at hove in front of maybe two or three thousand people and it felt like an event of sorts for the people that were there but it wasn't it, it didn't dominate the narrative in the same way that um i think i think if you're a cricket fan it was relatively hard to avoid the fact there was a women's hundred final happening on uh saturday which definitely wasn't the case you could definitely have missed the ksl uh, in previous years but yeah it's, it's it's been it's been great um i think it will hopefully have um a, a massive positive impact in terms of england playing at bigger grounds playing in front of bigger crowds um in the future and i think uh, one of the other po- promising things was that a lot of the sort of established England internationals didn't completely dominate the competition. People like uh, Knight and Siver, who maybe would have been, you know, expecting to churn out hundreds upon hundreds of runs off not particularly many balls, didn't necessarily completely set it alight. Which uh, you know, again, is promising about the, the depth of talent, um, which which has you know potentially been a, 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 an issue in the past. But I feel like the the gap is probably narrowing between the, the very top players and um, the level below, which yeah, is a good thing. Yeah, and the the sort of um, putting the men's and women's teams, uh, giving them the, the same branding, the same you know, putting them on, on a level as 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 clubs essentially was uh, clearly um, well something new and something that that seemed to work very well. Some of the players spoke about that uh, in terms of the men sporting the women and vice versa. Um, there were, I suppose, we'll have to judge some of the success of the tournament. Um, it, it will be whether in five years' time there are a load more um, kids taking up cricket uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, there were there were lots of extra bits to the games, um, DJs, bands, um, in-ground pres- presenters, uh, um, people singing happy birthday on the big screens, all that sort of thing. I mean, uh, I'm sure in the future they can think about having the 100 Weekender, um, basically just a full-on sort of music festival um, combined <laughs> with the finals of the cricket, perhaps. Um, Paul, well, both of you really, but Paul, I'll start with you. What what were the bits that um, you enjoyed most, the bits that, that felt like um, they were adding something to to the spectacle as a whole and that will be a, be around um, for the future? So in terms of like the product, like you questioned, okay, this, like the branding, whether you liked it or not, uh, I think it gave it an edge, you know, that people thought, okay, this is quite cool. This is new. Um, the stage, the music, whether it was necessary to get people in, maybe it 
it sold people that oh you can come watch some music i'm not sure it actually worked in the ground necessarily a stage on part of the in part of the stands rather than a performance in the middle say like katie perry did at the world t20 final um but you know all of that dressing up you you get that at some t20s anyway um but it was it was a good atmosphere um where where they can improve i guess um the days where it rained the communication uh was quite bad me and matt were both there uh that day at the oval where they had probably about 10 to 20 minutes of rain but it's sod uh it had been raining the day before so the outfield was very 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 soggy and they didn't really communicate what on earth was happening obviously after that we got a really really good game and the crowd were well up for it but um i think overall the 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 product has been good for the the fans going uh to the ground it's been on the tv um obviously great that it's been on the bbc um that that just gets eyeballs and the curious uh, it being on after the olympics for example that people would just carry on watching in the afternoon it being school holidays i think it's really important that it keeps this school holiday slot um how that fits in with the rest of the calendar is another matter um where i think that one thing in terms of away from the in stadium and the domestic product is how you make this tournament uh significant on a global scale um to make other countries notice it i um from our sort of social following um i feel like that there hasn't been much interest from abroad whether that's because the sort of the the downgrade in international players uh partly the time zone um this is all a challenge that the ecb is going to have i think whether like not necessarily selling the format so it's played in other places but actually just getting eyeballs on the tournament and so it's viewed in the sort of same way yes i think i think overseas it's sort of still seen i i know here it's seen by some in sort of traditional cricket circles it's a bit of a joke but i think globally maybe that people think oh it's this thing that england are doing uh it was it wasn't the easiest thing to watch in india it wasn't on tv it was on fan code um i think that's things that the ecb needs to sort ahead of the next season is okay we've done this we've done the first one get more people to buy into it now and and matt um i mean things like 10 10 ball sets and uh um tweaks to the playing additions uh in addition to all the um the extra bump around the edges i mean what will be uh what will be on the the list for for season two do you think uh great question i, I it could be anything honestly well it, I, i'm not sure how involved trent woodhill is going to be in year two but he's a, <laughs> he's a blue sky thinker so it could be you know, who knows? We could get the power surge. We could get subs. We could get anything. <laughs> um, I think they'll probably try and keep it relatively simple. I think it took a bit of adjusting to this year. And I think it, it generally it's probably a, a good thing not to have too many changes too often. Otherwise, they lose any kind of value. Um, yeah, I, I I think my main thing is what I mentioned earlier in terms of they need to just big up the players involved a bit more, I think. Um, you know, for example, it, Livingston has had such an amazing summer, such an amazing uh, tournament as well and has almost become you know the poster boy for the 100 more or less um, given how well he's done in this competition and given uh, you know he's suddenly a household name in a way that not many active England cricketers are um, I think it's yeah I think you need you need the big sell every time he comes out to bat why not have um, you know rather than just a quick 
quick thing on the big screen, just give him a huge sell. This is this guy is the leading run scorer in the competition. This guy is the MVP as it stands, all that sort of thing. Um, even on TV, you know, there's a bit of contrast between, for example, in the Big Bash. Maybe this is because um, you know there, there are a certain number of years in and the product has waned a bit. But there's usually a big sell when someone like Chris Lynn is playing against whoever it might be, and someone plays against their old team. There's usually a bit of um, build up in terms of the the individual narratives and the stories around a particular game, um, which it was almost completely absent. I thought um, in the hundred, which I found found slightly strange because I think there were a lot of you know you could. You could so easily build up, you know, one team's overseas player against another's or one team's England player against another. And I think there wasn't actually very much of that, um, which I think was a missed opportunity. But yeah, in, ter- in terms of all the sort of off-field and stadium stuff, I think the uh, there was a good line in uh, Emma John's piece for the Cricket Monthly, which I would recommend to anyone who's not read it, where she said she, she quoted one of her friends saying... Um, it feels like a, uh, a Shoreditch sort of marketing consultancy has fired ideas at the ECB, and they've they've not had the uh, they've not backed themselves enough to say no to any of them. So um, yeah, I, I definitely did feel like that at times, where you sort of walk into the Oval and see the, the crispy duck and hoisin stand behind the <laughs> behind the uh, behind the seats. But yeah, no, it's um, not all of it's for me, but not much of it is aimed at me. So um, you know, who am I to judge? <laughs> Um, yes, well, the revolution has been televised and cricket, as we know it, seems to be still standing, although time will tell. I think uh, that is enough balls for one day. Thankfully, we don't have to sit forlornly spinning our helmets in the dugout for 11 months for another fix because it's blast quarterfinals week. Not to mention the fact England take on India at Headingley in the third test. Although on current form, not mentioning it might be the best option. Plus the <laughs> arrival of New Zealand women for a limited overs tour. We will, of course, be all over it. Um, Thanks to Matt and Paul and to you all for tuning in. Feel free to comment and rate us on your preferred podcast provider and keep up with all the latest news on ESPNCrickInfo.com.